Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we gather together in your house on your day to praise your name, to do so especially in this Advent season with great praise and thanksgiving for how you came, how you took on flesh and suffered humiliation and shame, even death on a cross. And we praise you, O Christ, for you were raised on the third day, and you rule and you reign even today with unquestionable power. We praise you, O Christ, because you've promised that you're coming back for us. Lord, would you help us to long for your appearing? Would you help us to long for the day when we will be made like you, when we will see you as you really are? Lord, that's our longing, that's our deepest desire, to see you and to be made like you. Or at least we know that should be our deepest desire and longing. But Lord, if we're honest, and Lord, please give us the grace to be honest. If we're honest, your second coming hasn't crossed many of our minds this week. Some of us are too stressed out to think about you, Jesus. The to-do list is too long. Getting presents ready and meals and holiday goodies. And Lord, many of us are, are sad because the holidays aren't usually merry and bright for us. We're living with loss or grief or sickness brokenness in our relationships and our families and Lord putting on a a happy face and faking our way through Christmas is at times exhausting and Lord some of us are afraid some of us are scared about what tomorrow will bring be it unemployment or illness or a child whose heart is far from you and so Lord we need you Jesus we need you. Would you come even now and rescue us from ourselves, from our idols, from our brokenness, from our fears, and indeed from our sadness? And would you, Lord Jesus, bring to us healing and hope and restoration and joy? And oh, Holy Spirit, would you bring to our mind and bring to our hearts, would you testify with our spirits that we belong to the Father? Would you remind us anew that we are sons and daughters? Would you set our affections on things above and not on earthly things? Would you help us to live as those who are truly waiting for your appearing? We need this miracle, this work of grace in our hearts even this morning. So we pray these things for ourselves, but we know that the very same things apply to the the folks on on our prayer list this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you'd be near to Rosa Helen and to her family as they mourn the loss of her mom this week. Lord, help them in this mixture of joy and sorrow. 
be near to them with your grace. Father, many in our midst are in pain. Would you help Terry and Leanne and Linda as they face pain and illness? Would you be with Wendy as she faces the pain and needs healing and recovery after this last surgery? Would you help Rebecca in her pain as she continues to recover from this major back surgery? And would you grant today especially traveling mercies? Lord, as she travels to Mississippi to be with her mother. Father, we pray for our sister church, Christ Church, down in Mount Pleasant. We pray for her pastor, John Payne. Father, we pray even today that you would grant grace so that John might proclaim the riches of this glorious gospel with power and with unction from your Holy Spirit. Would you grant that that church would be a beacon of gospel grace in Mount Pleasant. Lord, we pray for our ministry partner here in, in Orangeburg. We pray for Daz, and we pray for the moms that this ministry reaches out to. We pray, Lord, that lives might be saved through their ministry. Lord, we pray that lives would be touched and changed with the gospel. Father, we pray specifically for the two families that uh, we collected gifts for this year. And those have been delivered this week. Lord, we pray that uh, along with the, the tangible expression of grace and generosity, Lord, uh, that Daz would be able to communicate to them clearly the gospel of grace, that it might be received. Now, Lord, we lift up all of these. And we lift up this next portion of our service as we turn our attention to your word. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need ears to hear. We need eyes to see Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray, we ask, we beg even that you would do a deep work of grace by all the means that you've given us, that you do that this morning, that you would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted in whose name we do pray. Amen. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings, the first chapter, this final Sunday in Advent, the final day of Advent, in our times together these Sunday mornings, we've been exploring the question, why did He come? We're celebrating the fact that he did, but why did he come? If, in fact, he is a Savior, as the Scriptures proclaim that we've already read this morning, why do we need to be saved? From what do we need to be rescued? And in order to answer those questions these past few weeks, we've taken our cue from the very first words written in the New Testament, in the second half of the Bible. And it admittedly starts in somewhat of a lackluster way. It's not a whole lot of fanfare and ta-da, but with a, a family tree. That's what we have here in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the 
father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas, in fact, begins with a genealogy. That's a a bit unusual, but it's more than a bit unusual, more than just a little bit strange, the folks that Matthew chose to include in this genealogy. It's interesting that he included five women, since usually only the fathers are listed. So that draws your attention, but it's also interesting which women and which situations Matthew calls our attention to. He's reminding folks if they've been reading, if they've been paying any attention at all to some rather icky, at times R-rated things that happened there in the past. And so the question we've asked over and over in these last few weeks is, why, Matthew? Why would you pick these (laughs) Why would you draw attention to the things that are normally swept under the rug, that normally don't have a big spotlight shown on them? Why would you choose to emphasize moments of human failure and weakness? Some of what these folks did is despicable. Some of these folks were desperate. But therein lies the key. That's exactly who Christmas is for. For folks who've done despicable things, for folks who in fact are despicable. And Christmas is for those who are absolutely and completely desperate. At the very end of their rope. And we see both of those very clearly in the situation that Matthew calls our attention to by mentioning the fourth woman that he does in this genealogy. He says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even mention her name. And in doing so, he's going out of his way to make sure that we're thinking about all that went down with David. He wants us to remember David's greatest failure. And he could have easily said, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. But instead of mentioning her name, he he identifies her further through the name of her dead husband. So that we get the sum total of David's failure. So I want to be mindful of those who are with us this morning who maybe aren't familiar with all the details. I'm going to summarize for you what's contained in 2 Samuel 11. That's that's where the account of of this affair takes place. And then in a few moments, we'll get to this 1 Kings passage that's printed in your worship folder. But for now, here's the 92nd version of what went down with David and Bathsheba, recorded in 2 Samuel 11. David, the king of Israel, God's chosen people, In the spring, when kings are supposed to be out at battle, he's home relaxing. 
taking it easy, and from the rooftop deck of his house, he spots a beautiful woman bathing, and he sends his guys to go get her. Now, this isn't a a situation where he's sending a wingman to say, hey, my friend is interested in you, or you know, the, the language here seems to suggest it's simply going and taking her by force. Go and get her. And so they do, even though one of David's own men says, now, hang on a second, isn't this woman the wife of one of the commanders of your army, but nothing doing? David has her brought, commits adultery with her, and she conceives. And so after David's first scheme to cover all this up fails, he has this woman's husband, Uriah, murdered. It's despicable. And this is what Matthew wants us to think about as we think about the coming of Christ. When he begins to give his account of the coming of Messiah, the the birth and life and death and resurrection of the Savior who is Christ the Lord, let me make sure I throw in some despicable folks to show you how he got here. And plenty of despicable folks who would come after him. Matthew calls our minds to a pretty shocking example, an adulterer and a murderer that he might give us hope. And that he might show us why it was that Jesus came and for whom he came. And and so here's the key. Here's the dots that we've got to connect, or this isn't going to make any sense. You're going to say, what? How in the world is this hopeful? You can't miss this. The reason that Matthew can call our attention to a big failure like David The reason I can boldly tell you this morning that Christmas is for the despicable and that give us hope rather than leading us to despair is that God's grace and forgiveness are full and free. Friend, I don't know what you've done. I don't know the despicable things that are on your record. I don't know the despicable thoughts that you've thought even this week that if they came to the light of day, you would die of embarrassment. Please hear me. They're not too great. You've not gone too far. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus. If David wasn't, you can't be. David was in a bad way. He didn't even, he didn't even know it. He was blind to his own despicability. It took a prophet coming from God to, in essence, trick him into seeing what he had done. You can read about that later in 2 Samuel 12, just the very next chapter. David wasn't too far gone. You're not too far gone because God's grace and forgiveness are full and free. David finally saw what he'd done. Nathan the prophet helped him to see it. 
David saw it, he owned it, and he cried out to God for mercy. And there's a beautiful record of that crying out in Psalm 51. Look at these verses on the screen with me. Here's his, here's his prayer. Here's his desperate cry once he saw how despicable he was. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Purge me with with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. David cried out for mercy. And he got it. Full and free. And he would have to cling to that mercy. He would have to cling to the truth of that grace and mercy. Because forgiveness didn't instantly fix or undo all that was broken. There were deep, lasting, painful scars and consequences for his sin. But at the end of the day, when he laid his head down at night, There was this confident assurance that the Lord had not forsaken him. That the Lord had indeed hidden his eyes from his sin and cleansed him from it. So that's one beautiful and I think hopeful part of seeing that Christmas is for the despicable. Here's the other part of seeing the hope of Christmas being for the despicable. By Matthew calling attention to David's failures, we see the truth that God weaves even our sin and failure into his purposes and plans. See, David's sin with Bathsheba and his murdering her husband didn't derail God's plan for the world. It didn't throw God a curveball that he didn't see coming. No, quite the opposite. God knew before the beginning of time that David would be an adulterer, that David would be a murderer, and he still accomplished all his good purposes and plans. In fact, God chose to bring Jesus into this world not in spite of this failure, but through it. Through David's sin and failure comes Jesus the Christ. While not being the author of sin and failure, he wove it into his plan and accomplished exactly what he wanted to do. Let that blow your mind for just a minute. For the thoughtful among you, that's going to raise some questions for you to wrestle with. Right? I welcome those. I'd love to talk with you about those. It might make you squirm a little bit in your theological chair to think of God working through our sin and our failure. But here's the thing. 
if God couldn't work through our sin and failure, he wouldn't have anything to work with. Right? So let that blow your mind, but most of all, let that give you great hope. Great, great hope. You can't thwart God's purposes. God always gets what he wants, or else he wouldn't be God. Now, will we suffer consequences along the way for our sin and failure and folly? Oh, yeah. He's always bringing us back to him. He's always bringing us back to him. Now, Here's part two in your outline. See, the situation I've described to up to this point, that's what most of us think about when we hear Bathsheba's name mentioned. We think about the affair that she had with David that led to the murder of her husband. But there's more to her story. There's an active role that she takes in preserving this lineage of Christ by seeking to save her own neck and that of her son Solomon And that brings us to the passage printed in your worship folder. So let me set this up for you. David is now old and frail. He's nearing death. And Adonijah, who is David's fourth-born son, but the oldest one still alive. Times were rough back then. He wants to be king. There's just one small problem with that. The throne's already been promised to Solomon. So Solomon is the second child of David and Bathsheba. The first child, of course, died as a result of David's sin, as a consequence for David's sin. And so Adonijah's quest for the throne is bad news for Bathsheba and Solomon because they didn't do the whole peaceful transfer of power thing all that well back then. And so Bathsheba knows that she... And Solomon would get it if Adonijah takes the throne. And it's actually the prophet Nathan that finds out about this plan first. And we pick up with his action in verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 1. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servants, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the king in his chamber Now, the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king and said to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he is not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. 
Otherwise, it will come to pass when my Lord the King sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And so true to his word, Nathan comes in and confirms all of these things that Bathsheba has said. And then we pick up in verse 29. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. See, he's still living in light of that forgiveness and that mercy that he's received. As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. So it's easy to read this account, to read right over it and miss the significance of it. I bet even if I asked for a show of hands, right, there are some of us in the room who didn't even really know this was here, don't really remember it being here. It's not memorable, even though you may have read it several times. But I think this is likely the other part of what Matthew wants to draw our attention to when he mentions the wife of Uriah in the genealogy. He wants us to remember her, not just for the affair that she had with David, probably not even at her own will. He wants her to also be remembered because she was so desperate. She was desperate. She feared she was about to lose her head. But she sprang into action. And there's something to be said for that. There's something commendable about that realizing your desperation and springing into action. In fact, that's exactly the type of people that Christmas is for. Those who see their desperation, those who fear they're about to lose their very lives if they don't run to the king for help. Christmas is such a wonderful time. But it's also a dangerous time. Because at no other time of the year are more people thinking about Jesus and talking about Jesus and looking at nativities and Christmas pageants, even feeling somehow close to Jesus, when in reality they couldn't possibly be further from him. Because very often the Christ of Christmas is the Jesus who is heartwarming and inspiring and gives us this nice, warm, fuzzy feeling inside. But friends, listen very carefully. God the Son didn't leave His throne. He didn't take on flesh and endure the humiliation and suffering of life on this earth to warm your heart. He didn't die a cruel death on a cross at the hands of sinful men to inspire you. He came to rescue you and me from eternal damnation. from tasting, from having to taste for ourselves the white-hot wrath of God the Father because of our sin and because of our rebellion. 
because of our despicability. Folks, there has to be a life or death desperation in our crying out to Jesus or we've never really cried out to him. So you don't just sidle up to Jesus and say, hey, I think I'd like to join your team if you would help me out a little bit. Some fulfillment, some peace. No. You come running to Jesus and you fling yourself at his feet and you cry out desperately for mercy, begging for your life. Christmas is for the despicable and the desperate. And those aren't two different groups. They're one and the same. Right? You, you can't reluctantly agree, okay, I guess I'm a little bit desperate, and so I guess I could use some help from Jesus. But this despicable thing, you must be talking about somebody else. Right? Maybe you're here this morning, and you're offended at my talk of being despicable. You, you bristle against it. You say, I'm not despicable. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm trying quite hard, actually. If that's you, you're not ready for Christmas. You're not ready for Jesus. Not for the real Jesus. Jesus didn't come for the morally adept. He didn't come for those who've got things basically squared away and figured out and just need a little help getting over the hump. He came for failures. He came for screw-ups, for relapsers, for adulterers, for murderers, for liars and gossips and lost causes. He came for all who've seen the reality of who they are and in desperation have flung themselves at Jesus' feet and begged to be rescued. And for those of us who have, for those of us who've seen how despicable and how desperate we are, we will have a Merry Christmas. That's who it's for. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's admittedly not a traditional Christmas text or a traditional Christmas message. It's not warm and fuzzy. It's cold, hard reality. But, Lord, that's our only option if we want to do justice to why our Savior came and to what He did once He got here. And so, Lord, I pray for the gift of Your grace even this morning to sense how we've been despicable and that that would lead us to a palpable sense of our desperation of how we are about to lose our necks if we don't run to the king for help. 
Grant that grace this morning in abundance, we pray. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.